What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. The EU in an energy bind. But what do Russian gas flows to Europe mean for us? U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. The more reliant on hydrocarbons we've been, the more dependent we've been or, or vulnerable we've been to the choices and actions of dictators and aggressors abroad. And streamers, relax. Netflix is doing okay for now. The financials that put most media investors at ease. Variety Editor-in-Chief Cynthia Littleton. Netflix is the pace car right now for the content business. Those stories. Plus, it wouldn't be a business news cycle without an update on the Musk Twitter drama now in the courtroom. Is an end in sight? The writing is on the wall here. That tells you which way she's going to rule. Eh, maybe not. He thinks that he's right. He might just appeal this and keep running through everything. It's Wednesday, July 20th, 2022. Squawk Pod begins right now. First up on today's podcast, the global balance of energy, and we'll start in Europe. That is because the EU's energy situation is tenuous, and they're up against a deadline. The Nord Stream pipeline, that's the main artery for Russian gas flow to the rest of Europe, is currently down for maintenance and will be, theoretically, back up and running tomorrow, Thursday. But some European nations are concerned that the Kremlin will just let it stay down. Last month before the closure, Gazprom, that's Russia's energy giant, cut flows through the Nord Stream pipeline to 40 percent. And as of this Monday, Gazprom is saying that it cannot fulfill its energy contracts with the EU. This is a very big deal. Europe was getting a huge percentage, about 40 percent of its gas, from Russia before the war in Ukraine. And since the invasion, the EU's been scrambling to rejigger their energy dependence. Part of that scramble, a request from the European Commission to all member countries, cut your energy consumption by 15% until next spring. Here's the Commission's President, Ursula van der Leyen, today. Overall, the flow of Russian gas is now less than one-third to what it used to be, for example, at the same time last year. Russia is blackmailing us. Russia is using energy as a weapon. And therefore, in any event, whether it's a partial major cutoff of Russian gas or a total cutoff of Russian gas, Europe needs to be ready. So what does this mean for us here in the States? Well, we're in for some more volatility. After a month of steady drops in domestic gas prices and energy demand getting back up to pre-pandemic levels, a supply crunch is coming. Costs for us will go up. Squawk Box anchors Becky Quick, Joe Kernan, and Andrew Ross Sorkin asked U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg what's coming. 
Secretary, thanks for being here today. Good to be with you. All right, let's talk a little bit about this because there have been uh, White House representatives out this week kind of taking a victory lap saying prices are down at the pump. That is surely the case, but I, I just wonder how concerned you should be about taking a victory lap yet. Most Wall Street analysts are anticipating that we will see higher energy prices. In fact, oil prices back above $100 a barrel at this point, anticipating higher prices all the way through the end of the year and beyond. Uh, if prices go back up, do you then have to take blame for the higher prices if you take a victory Lap now. Look, no one's out here saying mission accomplished. We just want to make sure that it's understood that uh, the measures that the president and the administration have taken to uh, help to reduce the uh, the price of oil seem to be having an effect. Uh, we all know that uh, no administration, no policymaker, uh, no president directly controls the price of gas or the price of oil. But there have been another measure, uh, a number of measures that we think are helping. We're seeing uh, gas get uh, back below $4 in most states. That's encouraging. Uh, I have noticed that the price of oil is falling more quickly than the price of gas, which uh, we continue to have questions about. Uh, but at the end of the day, this is an encouraging sign among a number of encouraging signs across our supply chains and our uh, economic indicators, even if we recognize that we've still got a lot of challenges from shock waves that continue to reverberate out from the colossal effect of the, of the pandemic uh, to destabilizing events like the unprovoked war against Ukraine by Russia, which is uh, obviously now several months underway, but still something with profound economic and strategic implications. One of the issues that the administration has kind of said this is helping things is the release of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. At what point do we run out of that oil? At what point does it need to be replenished? Well, that was a measure to stabilize oil prices, and uh, obviously that oil reserve gets built up over time when you have the opposite conditions, when you don't see the, the, the kind of uh, uh, pressures on, on supply and the kind of pressures on prices that we're living through right now. That's exactly why we have it. And uh, you know, I, I have a lot of uh, uh, regard for the decision-making that went into setting the level, which was uh, uh, unprecedented in how large the release was, but still allowing the U.S. to maintain maintain its strategic position and, and uh, reserves that are going to be needed uh, for other situations. Uh, obviously, a lot goes into the decision about when to buy back into it. The bottom line is uh, the president saw a moment where action was going to be helpful, took that action, and it's one of the things that I believe has contributed to oil prices moving in a better direction since that choice. So, Secretary, I have kind of a, a philosophical question about, about how, we, uh, how we approach things um, in, in terms of dealing with uh, with emissions and dealing with trying to trying to cut down on on the use of fossil fuels and how we deal with what Europe might be facing, and what I mean by that is th there are real possibilities that people might not have air conditioning during a heat wave or in the in the winter that they may not have enough energy to heat their uh, to heat their homes at this point now. The mitigation factors that, that we're employing to try to cut down on emissions, those really aren't going to cut CO2 emissions till probably 2030. And while we're dealing with these, um, we've got India building coal plants, we've got China building coal plants, just hand over fist and, and emitting and, and not really uh, helping our efforts whatsoever. When wind and solar won't power the homes in Europe, how do we not use hydrocarbons to make sure that near term these people aren't either freezing or dying from the heat? It, it seems like a real quandary at this point to try to do these, to near term try to do these things when near term we need power, we need energy. 
So how do you declare a how do you declare a climate crisis in the middle of an actual weather crisis? Well, look, uh, obviously those those two things are closely related. I mean, it's uh, more than 100 degrees in London today, or at least it was yesterday. Uh, we've seen things happen in the Pacific Northwest in the U.S. that are supposed to be basically all but statistically impossible, and they're happening more and more often. But this is what a transition looks like, right? This is exactly the challenge that we're living through. You can't flip a switch. You can't do it overnight. And you mentioned Europe. Uh, you know, one of the things I saw during a, a visit to the Netherlands recently uh, is how even in that extremely forward-leaning and green country, uh, if you go to their, their port, uh, you, you see windmills, you see a lot of clean energy infrastructure. You also see miles and miles of petroleum-related infrastructure because that's a part of their energy mix, part of their economy, and will be for some time. Nobody thinks that you can uh, make this change overnight, but also I think there's a clear understanding that when it comes to the climate, we're running out of time. Uh, the, the science is unambiguous in terms of the uh, level of threat, in terms of the lives and livelihoods uh, that America and the world stand to lose if we don't accelerate our action. And I don't think we should be following the lead of India and China. I think uh, countries like India and China should be challenged to but follow the, the, the lead but of the, the reality United States set, leading the, the way The reality set in, Mr. Secretary. The, the realities may set in in Europe. We may see the downside of, of for example, if, if the president declares a, a climate emergency, executive order, we are going to stop oil and gas drilling in the outer continental shelf. We're going to do all kinds of things that, that will limit production of hydrocarbons at this time with the idea that by 2030, everyone else is going to be along with us and that, that will somehow you think we're going to we're going to be able to change the weather between or the climate between now and 2030? With what China well, we've and changed the going? climate between twenty. We've changed the climate be between twenty ten and now, and not in a good way. Uh, so yes, we can and must act to make sure that we reverse the worst effects of climate change. Look, some of it's upon us right now. There, this is not a question about whether it's going to happen. But the or whether emissions it's not gonna are going to keep rising until twenty. They're going to keep rising until twenty thirty, no matter lives what. And, and how many livelihoods are going to be destroyed by allowing the worst effects of climate change to happen? But right and, now, people are going to freeze and die from the heat. They're going to freeze and die from the heat for something that may or may not happen by 2030. Uh, they're dying from the heat because of a climate-related extreme weather. But we're not going to cut emissions until 2030. Later. In the meantime, they need energy to cool their homes and to heat their homes in the meantime. Right. And, and as, you, as you know, I mean, the other thing that's striking is I've noticed some uh, naysayers in, in the U.S. speaking as if the only power sources that are exist uh, that exist are solar, wind, and hydrocarbon. Obviously, in, in Europe, they, they have a mix that uh, relies partly on nuclear. Uh, we have more options that are being developed in the U.S., as well as being smarter and more efficient with the energy that we have. Energy efficiency has often been described as the fifth fuel. Uh, and in, in the transportation side of things, finding less carbon-intensive ways to, to move our vehicles. Obviously, the, the leading and, and most visible example of that's electric vehicles. It's why we're fighting to make EVs cheaper. And it's why we're getting these charging stations out across the country. But I've just, I've never known the United States to be a country that looks around the world and says, what's the lowest common denominator? Let's do that. Or we don't have control over every piece of it. So let's sit back, uh, accept the status quo and let some other country lead. That's not what America does. And I think what you're going to see from the president today is an assist insistence that America should be leading the way and challenging the rest of the world to catch up to us instead of matching uh, some other country that isn't doing a very good job. Secretary Buttigieg, let me ask you about some news of the morning. And I realize that this is a little outside your purview, but as a cabinet member and a representative of the administration, 
situation. I would like to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, the European Commission put out a statement earlier today asking all its member states to reduce their natural gas usage by 15 percent, have a plan to, to reduce that usage by 15 percent starting August 1st, going all the way through March of next year. That is a huge undertaking. It's going to mean, uh, I, I, we understand why they're doing it, when you have Putin threatening to cut the supply of natural gas coming through, but that is going to mean a lot of different things uh, for the economy there, for the supply chain here. All of these things are kind of interrelated. How do we react to this? How do we help them, particularly when we have our port for moving that liquefied natural gas that's uh, been shut down temporarily because of an accident there? So uh, I haven't had a chance to, to analyze all the implications of the European action, but uh, I do think that this is another moment that calls us to think about the relationship between the symptom and the cause. Uh, it's been true for Western countries, certainly for the US, also for European countries, that the more reliant on hydrocarbons we've been, the more dependent we've been or, or vulnerable we've been to the choices and actions of dictators and aggressors abroad. Uh, obviously, Europe is uh, very uh, intertwined in terms of its, its energy sector and uh, its, uh, its macroeconomic outlook with what's going on with Russia. They've taken a remarkable uh, and I would say admirable stand, given how much they have to lose against the Russian Federation's aggression. And now they're taking measures to try to protect their economies, knowing that this is going to be disruptive. And having stepped up and recognized some amount of economic pain was going to come with standing for democracy and freedom. Uh, what they're doing, I think, does speak not only to our interests and our alliances, but to our shared values. And uh, uh, certainly, I'm doing everything I can to uh, work with my European counterparts in the transportation sector. And we've got an administration that cares about friendships, cares about partnerships, cares about alliances, including or especially the transatlantic alliance. And we're going to be there with our European partners every way that we can. Does that mean that we will ship as much liquefied natural gas as we possibly can to help them out, even if it means prices go up here? I mean, it's this constant battle that we're fighting, worrying about prices at home, but also wanting to help our allies overseas. I'm, I'm not here to make news on, on energy policy, but uh, again, what I'll say is the, the sooner we can be focused on domestic, clean energy production uh, as leading the way in, in the U.S. energy mix, the less we are confronted with uh, some of the, the most confounding uh, questions of, uh, of, of geopolitical risk that come with the 20th century economy. And I'm, I'm still astonished that, that some folks, uh, and, and I, I felt this, I was testifying in Congress yesterday, um, some folks seem to really uh, struggle to let go of the status quo. Um, if someone wants to raise the reasons why it's hard, those are absolutely challenges we should be taking on and, uh, and working through. But if it's done as an excuse to do nothing, all we're doing is signing up for more of these vexing questions that pit our interests, our alliances, and our values against each other year after year after year. I don't want that to be dominating uh, our public discussions in the middle of this century the way it is at the beginning of the century. And finally, Mr. Secretary, I know you've said that if President Biden runs again in 2024, you would absolutely support him. If he doesn't, would you consider running? I'm completely focused on my day job. It is more than enough to take up 110% of my faculties and, and then some. Uh, we've got a, a major announcement, at least one every week. We just did a, another round of, of airport grants. Uh, we're close to, uh, to a, a couple other announcements that are programs that in any normal time would themselves be pretty much defining for the entire uh, career of a transportation secretary. So that's what I'm focused on. That's my world. And that's keeping me busy. Secretary Buttigieg, thank you very much for your time today, sir. Thank you.
Next on Squawk Pod, Netflix and the battle for streaming subscribers. Variety's Cynthia Littleton says it's the number that matters. I think earnings is has truly become the sub number, really, for big media, at least for the near term. And what else we're watching. I need to update you on old man. It's getting really good. Is it? Okay. Because if I said to you, tell me, old man. If you saw the way this old man kicks ass, you might not say that to me. <laughs> The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live at the Nasdaq Market Set in Times Square. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan. I'll tell you someone who's enjoying it. Netflix is enjoying uh, their earnings report. I mean, it's... In a strange way, it's actually sort of mixed. It's just, I guess, maybe on a relative basis, people are enjoying it. Streaming company losing 970,000 subscribers in the second quarter. That was, though, far less than the 2 million it expected. It also said it plans to unveil a lower-cost ad-supported tier of its service in early 2023. Of course, it signaled its plans to do that before, uh, but now putting a little bit more timing around uh, its ambitions there. Meantime, earnings of $3.20 per share. It beat analyst estimates of $2.94. Revenue falling short, though. Uh, and Netflix warned that the strengthening dollars impact, I mean, this is the other piece of it, on its international revenue, which makes up 60% of its top line. So, you know, there, there's sort of two, two component parts here. There's the value of the stock. There's how well you think this business is holding up. It's better. I mean, the question is, were they throwing the kitchen sink at it? you know, last quarter, and it, or did they not know? And then the other piece is just how, how fast they're going to continue to grow or not grow in the future, what kind of multiple you want to put on that. What I will say is this, I don't think this changes the dynamic at all in terms of the trepidation that has entered the market around the streaming business broadly, meaning I don't think that everybody in Hollywood breathes some kind of sigh of relief and says, oh my goodness, you know, let's keep spending, you know, let's spend $130 million on a, on a film that nobody's watching, and we're going to spend this. I think that there's, there's a new sort of reality. That reminds me of the, ca- the cable model, just in the sense that there's two ways you do streaming. Remember cable, you, get, you had sub fees, yep. people that pay for that, and then you make money from advertising. Now, Netflix has been sort of a sub fee story. It, 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 they didn't need advertising. They need people to pay every month to get it. It's not that you need to keep adding subscribers to pay every month, you need people to watch that you already have for longer periods of time so that the advertisers feel Which like Which also getting changes it. potentially the, the dynamic of what kind of programming you have. 
It also changes, by the way, and, and there was a report in the last week, we talked about it, I think, a couple weeks ago, the possibility that you have to go renegotiate with some of the content makers right. in terms of the license that you have, which at least historically didn't allow Change, for advertising. It's a different thing, right? Which, which will cost more. But, but it's so, nice, isn't it nice to have both? So it's, that's why cable is so good, subs and advertising. By the way, so, that's why it's nice like to Peacock also window it movies. Right. It's, it's nice to, to take your movie, bring it to the theater, it capture, capture it there, right. more, capture more it here. Paydays. By the way, but then... The, but the new payday is starting to look a lot more like the old payday. Right. And, and Cynthia Littleton from Variety is going to join us a little later to talk about how they're, they're changing. This is changing the calculus of how they look. Funny though. Yes. The old school is you take it to the theater, you take it to Netflix. You know the one thing, though? that it has in common with, with both of those? Content. If you have great content, people watch, so you can advertise, and people say, I gotta get that streaming service. So we're back to content again, right? If you don't have content, no one cares whether they have Netflix or not. People actually move. I can't get those Yellowstone prequels. Where are those? Paramount Plus or something? How do I get Paramount Plus? You can sign up for it. Does it? What do we I got? We actually gotta, got it because it's it's got some Star Trek. You gotta send in and mail in a check to Paramount or something. Can I do it online? Yes, you can do it on your TV on your smart TV. I don't think my smart TV is that smart. My phone does not have a mute. But my phone does. Oh wait a minute. Yes, it does. Um, but content, right? Do you not need content for both models? You need content, but you might need different types of content. For advertising versus... Netflix the, said if it was one thing, well, it was And Look, I, I don't think you actually need different kinds of content, but I will say that Netflix took a, had a strategy that they thought that if they went niche on certain things yeah. and they went broad on certain things, that they could capture these, these groups of people. Once you get into just the pure numbers game, you're in the numbers game. I need to update you on old man. It's getting really good. Is it? Okay. It's getting really... Well, you got, I love Jeff Bridges. But I feel like we can't talk about this, because if I said to you, tell me, old man, then you would... Then, I would say that then you to would you. But if you saw the way this old man kicks ass, you might not say that to me. <laughs> <laughs> Joining us right now is Tom Rogers, Engine Media Executive Chairman, former NBC Cable President and a CNBC contributor, and also Cynthia Littleton's here, Variety's co-editor-in-chief. Good morning to both of you. Uh, we should also mention that Variety published their latest cover story today on pay diversity in Hollywood due to the rise in streaming, and we want to talk about that as well. Uh, Tom, I'm going to start with you. Your take on these earnings uh, both in terms of the value of Netflix, but also how you think it's going to change or not the conversation in Hollywood, which seems to be whipsawed by what's happening in the streaming world and the costs associated with it. Well, good morning, Andrew. Uh, I don't really think this was a defining quarter. If you're a bull on Netflix, uh, you have support here. If you're a bear on Netflix, you have support here. And so goes for the rest of the, uh, the streaming arguments. Um, my view is that the focus on Netflix and its sub numbers is misplaced. This service for where streaming now is in the world has plenty of subscribers. When you put what it has by way of paying households with non-paying households, it's got over 100 million households, more than any other cable channel ever hit at the high point of cable. It's got plenty of distribution. When you think about what it has by way of 220 million worldwide, another 100 million not paying, the number of people per home that are watching, you're probably close to a billion people around this planet who have access and distribution to Netflix. It doesn't have a sub issue. It has a monetization issue. I, you know I've been a, a real supporter of the Netflix thesis, and I continue to be thinking that they're in a league on their own. What I don't understand is how these guys ever let one third of their audience 
become non-paying. I just don't understand how such a well-managed company could let that happen. And now they have the issue of trying to figure out between advertising and password sharing fixes, how they're going to deal with that. But that's their overwhelming issue. How do you monetize what is an amazing distribution base, whether they gain a million and a quarter, lose a million and a quarter, it really doesn't go to the value. Tom, but on on the valuation issue, do you then look at this price uh, at two, what are we at? $213 now and say, Screaming by, given given the prospect of monetizing uh, more of these users the way you suggest, or do you say yeah, yes? And I'll, over, I'll tell over, you overvalued. why. Uh, no, I, I think it is a buy here, and the reason is their engagement numbers still outpace everybody. They are thirty percent of all streaming viewing. Disney and HBO right. are about five percent. They had thirty-two original series crack the Nielsen top ten lists over the course of the quarter, weekly top 10 list. They had 827 original episodes to Amazon number two at about 200. Mm-hmm. So they are they are putting up numbers. And as they said in their earnings release, they hit an all-time high of 8% of all total television viewing in the United States. They are engaging well beyond what anybody else is. Engagement is what drives price. It is what keeps churn low and ultimately what can translate into advertising. And on those kind of metrics, there's a lot of value to be driven here that isn't being recognized yet. But that password, that password sharing issue, I just don't understand. Hey, Cynthia, just pulse of Hollywood. You know, there was a sort of... uh, Schadenfreude uh, situation, let's say, with the when the the last quarter, where you know everybody said, "Oh, finally, it's not working for them," and it's going to change the entire dynamic with which how Hollywood spends money on streaming, what what types of uh, product they make, what kinds of shows that that, that are going to be invested in or not. Does this earnings report change any of that? I think it does. It gives. I mean, Hollywood, there's a huge sigh of relief yesterday when it was clear that the numbers were not as bad as they could have been, or even worse, there was wild speculation that they might be well worse than 2 million. So there was a lot, there was a huge sigh of relief, but there's still a question of have they basically plateaued in terms of subscriber growth and their projection for the coming quarter, which is a blip in time, but their projection for the coming quarter was not hugely robust. It was about 1 million, but it is still growth. So on the one hand, yes, there was schadenfreude. The previous quarter showed they're mortal. It does happen to them. But I think there's still long-term. Netflix is the pace car right now for the content business. And long-term, there are questions. And there were questions that were spurred by the executive commentary yesterday about where they're spending their money, where they're going to allocate a lot of money for growth on content. Netflix, you know, came in a couple of years ago, came in, really started spending, drove up prices for everybody. And now there is a question of like, if they've plateaued, what does this mean? And oh, by the way, the economy looks like it's going into a recession. So there's definitely still a lot of nervousness and a lot of watching. But certainly yesterday's news could have been a lot worse. So there was a great exhale. In terms of in terms of your, your analysis of, of Netflix, and I love the phrase as the pace car, what, what do you think that portends then for everybody else in the business? So when you look at Paramount Plus or you look at what you think is going to happen with uh, Warner Media and HBO Max, uh, when you think about Disney and Hulu, do you think that you can extrapolate out? We saw some, some were surprising. HBO Max had a surprising amount of 
growth, even Paramount Plus showed some pluck. So I think earnings is has truly become the sub number really for big media, at least for the near term. That sub number, the sense of are you growing? Are people coming to your content as audiences shift off of the traditional platforms that these media companies have that have been the, the engine of their earnings? Investors clearly want to see, do you have traction in this new right. world? I think that, and again, Netflix is, if, if Netflix is the is the pace car, then this should be probably a good, if not spectacular quarter for the other larger players. But we'll see. Tom, you agree with that? I love this pace car analogy, but but do you, do you agree that it's demonstrating the pace for everybody else as well? Uh, yes, but for different reasons. I think everybody's... L- lost sight of the sub issues and what we learned from the cable world. ESPN and the Weather Channel had the same number of subscribers. Okay. And the valuations were massively different. Why? Because of engagement, because of time spent. Their pricing as a result were drastically different. The number of subscribers is being focused on here well beyond what it should be in terms of really getting to the essence of value. Where they are the pace car is understanding that they got to drive programming in a way that continues to drive the kind of engagement and the kind of overall viewing percentage they're getting, which puts them well ahead today of any other television service in the United States by far in terms of the amount of time people spend watching. Now, they're introducing advertising off the back of that, which is going to help make up some of this valuation gap. Very interesting to note that as Microsoft was chosen as the one to lead their advertising initiative, Microsoft had just said, hey, we're out of advertising ourselves on television for a while. People haven't pointed to the irony of that, uh, but what it really points to is this additional advertising that's going to be coming Netflix way is going to come right out of the hide of the legacy right. television guys. And so they're coming forward with advertising just at a time that the weakening of the legacy guys is going to be very pronounced. Fair enough. Tom Rogers and Cynthia Lipton, our pace cars of the morning on uh, some great analysis of the media and Hollywood businesses. Uh, we look forward to seeing you again very soon. Thanks. Cheese will be next. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs and the small dogs who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Here's Joe Kernan. 
Twitter scored winning its uh, first legal fight against Elon Musk. A Delaware judge granted the company's uh, request to fast track its lawsuit seeking to compel Musk uh, to complete his $44 billion purchase of Twitter. Uh, the judge ordered a five-day trial in October, agreeing with Twitter's claim that it uh, could be harmed by uncertainty about its future uh, as a public company. And I mean, about this is just, the writing is on the wall here. I mean, I, I, right. Oh, she show, the Can judge just showed her hand entirely yesterday. She said none of these bots are going to matter, so it doesn't matter how much time you have for it. This is not something that matters with the contract. So that tells you which way they're going. To, she's going to rule. So now the question is, if you're Twitter's board, yeah. or you're Elon Musk, I mean, part of it is, if you're Twitter's board, would you take $5 billion less and sell it to him? I don't think you take I, less than that. Right. But I don't think if you're him, you're, you're I don't know that he would out. do it. If, if he thinks that he's right, he might just appeal this and keep running through everything before he does anything else. Before we, just before we go to break. Yes, sir. Just one thing. Yep, I'm wearing pants. Good. Just one thing about Jeff Bridges. Yes, okay. sir. You just like him because he's the dude. He's the anti-dude in this, which shows what a great actor he is. He goes from the dude to the most aggressive, badass guy, even though he's over 70. One of the youngest people to ever win an Academy Award for Last Picture Show. Seven nominations. So he's, some people have called him the most natural he's a great actor. actor uh, Fabulous ever. actor. Fabulous. And this, that's why I think you gotta, I want you to tune in. I'm gonna start to tune in. All right. All right. When we come Hulu. back. Uh, Hulu. Right? It's on Hulu. Hulu. It is on Hulu. Right, and there's some ads, which, as I say, don't really bother me that much because they show me how much longer I've got to put in. Do you not pay the premium service? These guys are going to continue their conversation. Um, is, is there a premium for There who? is a premium service. Yes. No, this has, uh, this has ads. I don't know. I don't I don't. That, and that is the pod for today. Thanks for listening. Tell us what you're watching. You can tweet us at Squawk CNBC. I just finished Gaslit on Stars, so I need a new recommendation. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. You can tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern to get the smartest analysis, interviews, and fun from our TV show right into your ears. Follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. Now we are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.